Thanks for joining me for the second half of Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12. I'll be reading in the Phillips translation. Let's dive in. Do not then, and that then, or therefore in a number of translations, is doing a lot of work on behalf of verses 1 through 11. Because that then I just read, or therefore, is about to tell us exactly what the rest of this chapter is exactly about. So, what came before? Well, here's a little reminder, sort of a primer. Verse 3. All of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were, by that very action, sharing in his death. Verse 4. We were dead and buried with him in baptism, so that just as he was raised from the dead by that splendid revelation of the Father's power, so we too might rise to life on a new plane altogether. Verse 6. Let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross, that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. Verse 8, we shall also be men newly alive with him. Verse 11, in the same way, look upon yourselves as dead to the appeal and power of sin, but alive and sensitive to the call of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, let's begin again. Do not then allow sin to establish any power over your mortal bodies in making you give way to your lusts, nor hand over your organs to be, as it were, weapons of evil for the devil's purposes. Now, this is highly important. So I would humbly ask, we're right at the beginning of our podcast, but I would humbly ask for your fullest full attention. And just so you know, I'm going to step outside this text for just a second, making a seemingly irrelevant point, and I'd ask you to simply follow along and wait for its relevancy. Can you trust me to get there? Over this last year, I have been deep diving into the histories of the Civil War, its causes, its progression, and then its results through the era of Reconstruction. And frankly, I'd be delighted to buy you a cup of coffee and tell you everything I think I think I've been learning. But again, that's a conversation for another day, another setting. But for for real, feel free to text me about that. But here's where I want to plant you right now. On April 9th, 1865, after the brutalities of the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, the Battle of Attrition at Petersburg, plus, of course, the March to the Sea of Sherman and the Valley Campaign of Sheridan, Ulysses S. Grant meets the dignified yet clearly disastrously defeated General of the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee, at the McLean House at Appomattox. There they are, two men in a simple sitting room. A formal surrender is signed. Grant gives famously reasonable terms to the vanquished foe. And then Lee strides back out the front door of the house. He climbs into the saddle of his famous horse, Traveler, notably with a sigh, and then rides back to deliver news of the terms, news of the end. And I can't overstate this fact strongly enough. He returns to his forces having lost, 
having surrendered at the mercy of the stronger side. Appomattox is a byword for both total victory and total defeat. Except that it's not. Because since April the 9th, 1865, whether or not you know this, there has been a subtle stream of counter-history known as the, quote, lost cause of the Confederacy. It's the reason, partially, that there are still ongoing arguments about these memorials, statues, causes and effects relating to the Civil War. It's the reason that when I say the phrase states' rights, you almost automatically probably know that I'm referring to something, at least in some way peripherally, that has to do with a massive cataclysm that we call, again, the American Civil War. It's this idea that there was probably something noble, something valorous, something not so slavery related in the old Southern cause. Friends, the lost cause as a wrongly held, pernicious stain upon our national history is almost a perfect picture of what Paul is talking about here in verses 12 and 13a. To wit, there has been a total victory and a total defeat And yet we are somehow strangely tempted to mix our understandings and our behavior as if the former reality isn't true. I want you to listen to the reality that is true. At the cross, after the brutalities of his trial, beatings, and crucifixion, Jesus permanently defeated Satan, sin, your sin, and the ways of the world. There he is, having done it, having finished it. At the resurrection, a formal uh, banner of victory is forever unfurled. Jesus walks from the tomb as the conqueror of sin, death, and the grave. Satan slinks away to lick his wounds in utter, abject defeat. Any attempts to regroup will be decimated all over again. I cannot overstate Paul can't stop his statements along this line. Satan has lost. He is defeated. He is at the mercy of the stronger man. The cross and resurrection are both bywords for both total victory and total defeat. It is finished. It is forever finished. And any mindset of ours that thinks we live under the power of some lost spiritual cause, some remnant of the former way, is a false Mindset. We owe no allegiance to the side that Jesus eternally vanquished. In fact, we'll have no further dealings there if we'll abide in Jesus, the victor. Eternal spiritual victory is already ours if we'll finally truly let ourselves possess it. That's where Paul will be going as he writes the words we call Romans chapter 6. So, Let's continue on. But, like men rescued from certain death, put yourselves in God's hands as weapons of good for his own purposes. For sin is not meant to be your master. You are no longer living under the law, but under grace. And you know, the power of God's grace, of his rescuing us from certain death, of his freeing us from the mastery of sin and the law, is this. 
That as free men and women, sons and daughters of his resurrection, grace lavished children of his heart, we have agency. We may now set our wills upon his will. We may place our lives within his hands. We may freely choose to have a different Lord, a a different master who is gracious, deathless, and the freest free agent who ever lived. In short, my friends, we may choose to live. We may arrange our lives in line with life himself. And I want you to keep listening as Paul kind of continues on with this idea of agency. Continue to listen. Here we go. Now, what shall we do? Shall we go on sinning because we have no law to condemn us anymore, but are living under grace? Never. Just think what it would mean. You belong to the power which you choose to obey, whether you choose sin, whose reward is death, or God, obedience to whom means the reward of righteousness. I would say, let's paint this starkly. Imagine if every single morning you you got out of bed and were immediately confronted by a pair of doors on the other side of which were two very different states of being. Above, let's say, the the right-hand door was a plaque that read this, the kingdom of heaven, guaranteed by the work of Jesus, experienceable by listening to and obeying God's spirit. Peeking through that door, you would see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as the atmosphere. All is well there. On the other hand, above that, let's say, left-hand door, the plaque reads quite differently. Resorting to your old self, cursed by the original fall of the flesh, experienceable by just going through the motions that happen to happen to occur to you. Peeking through that door, you'd be assaulted uh, by its inborn hatreds, its ups and downs, its nervous anxiety, its wrathfulness, its resorting to putting oneself first, its inconstancy, its harshness, and its out-of-control atmosphere. Everything, yes, is, quote, normal there, if your barometer for normalcy is the brokennesses of human frailty. Friends, I would have you know, Paul would have you understand that this is exactly the choice you are offered every morning of your life. You belong to the power which you choose to obey, the kingdom of heavens or the old ways of the flesh. You are given the choice to choose. He goes on, thank God that you who were at one time the servants of sin, honestly responded to the impact of Christ's teachings when you came under its influence. Then, released from the service of sin, you entered the service of righteousness. I use an everyday illustration because human nature grasps truth more readily that way. And speaking, by the way, of everyday illustrations and the service of righteousness and the impact of the influence of Christ's teaching, 
Friends, I want you to remember a particular teaching of his whose influences impact should cause you to glory in your call to the service of righteousness. This was an absolutely just sort of everyday illustration of his. And here was the scene, just to kind of paint it for you, in which he actually spoke it. So listen, as usual, he was surrounded by crowds from all over the Galilee who were clamoring close to see and hear the things he would do and say. Just recently, he had been up and down through the towns while his disciples were carrying out their own particular mission. That's the one that he had commissioned with the instructions you and I call Matthew 10. Now, it is what we call Matthew 11. Perhaps what Jesus might have called, I don't know, Monday afternoon or Friday morning. Assuredly, he is somewhere near the sea with the fresh breeze blowing and the sound of the crowds and who knows, maybe a flock of passing birds. He is heartened by some of the people's belief and almost equally disheartened by others' equal unbelief. I imagine him watching the faces in the crowd. Then for a moment, he speaks actually some fairly harsh words to them. And then suddenly again, he is lifted up his hands and he's talking totally first-handedly to his father in heaven. I want you to listen along with those crowds to what he says. Oh, father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you for hiding these things from the clever and intelligent and for showing them to mere children. Yes, I thank you, father, that this was your will. Then moments later, He says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You might be asking yourself, Why am I dropping you into this sort of familiar text? Well, because similarly to my two doors morning wake-up analogy, and actually similarly to last week's two-line sin righteousness understanding, it strikes me that the burden of Paul's heart for the Roman fellowship is that they would exchange their difficult, heavy burden of sin permanently and then come forever under the easy light yoke of Jesus. In the Phillips translation, I even appreciate some of the prepositional phrasing. You were, quote, released from the service of sin. You came, quote, under the influences of Jesus' teaching. In other words, your individual life, all all human nature, is already under someone or something It may be given in service to something or someone. Friends, the who or what is up to you. And don't forget, you've been made free. And in fact, let's listen to how that yoke imagery continues to fit. And again, please don't forget the degree to which you've already been set free to personally make a choice of your yoke. I'm going to continue on. In the past, you voluntarily gave your bodies to the service of vice and wickedness for the purpose of becoming wicked. 
You were, I'll say it this way, trudging the earth alone under the crushing weight of the fall of, and of sin. I mean, that was your reality. So now give yourselves to the service of righteousness for the purpose of becoming really good. I'd say it to you this way. Watch how Jesus is beckoning you under that light, uh, easy yoke. Uh, Go ahead, slip in next to him. Feel how he is the one who's doing all the work. For when you were employed by sin, you owed no duty to righteousness. You sort of slogged along alone in the precise direction of your appetites and your impulses. Yet what sort of a harvest did you reap from those things that today you blush to remember? In the long run, those things mean one thing only, death. So I would say, friends, understand the picture in play. It's of a lifetime's work of collaring around that single wide yoke of confusion, heaviness, and self And all one's lifetime earns it is death. In fact, that that perhaps is a good bracing understanding for us to internalize. If you and I continue to engage with the old self, unregenerated from the fall, ignoring the glories Jesus has already given us, we are only living our lives towards death. I mean, in that economy, light becomes dark. Peace becomes war. Joy becomes sorrow. I mean, we are purposely giving ourselves over to a life built on paradox. But my friends, please listen closely. This is actually what is true. This is verse 22. But now that you are employed by God, you owe no duty to sin and you reap the fruit of being made righteous while at the end of the road, there is life forevermore. I mean, can you see in your mind's eye the image of what is on offer? It's of a lifetime's fellowship with Jesus, who is under the yoke with you, bringing his clarity, lightness, selflessness into you. This lifetime earns you life forevermore. I mean, can you and I fully, finally get this? Because if we'll only give ourselves to this new life Jesus has for us, like totally set free from the fall, basking in the glories that he has for us, we are uniting each and every day with life himself. In that economy, light is Jesus. Peace is Jesus. Joy is Jesus. We are purposely giving ourselves over to the only life that is life. Life becomes this perfect unity. We become integrated with heaven itself. So let's listen as Paul concludes the chapter. Sin pays its servants. The wage is death. But God gives to those who serve him. His free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Said differently, There are two possible ways you can live your life, and in fact, your day today, and they both offer their own ironclad guarantees. Your sin nature will destroy you. 
and whether it's fast or slow, everyone around you. And you will find death sort of creeping backward to overtake your life. Friends, this is a poor, perpetual alignment of the human spirit. But on the other hand, the perfect nature of Jesus is always available to give you life today, tomorrow, every day, and he will walk with you today, tomorrow, every day until you enter life eternal, which is his life. Friends, with him, heaven invades the human spirit immediately, and the rest of life is never, ever lived alone. Now, which of those two sounds better to you? Thanks for listening.